Hello and welcome to the Research Connection Podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting edge research and connects it with users in the community. You all want to take a minute to introduce yourselves? So I am Natasha Lee Thompson, a recent graduate from Brandon University. So I recently completed my Master of Education degree in Education Administration. I'm, I'm Barb Perry. I'm at uh, Ontario Tech University and uh, I've for many, many years, 30, almost 30 years now, I uh, have studied hate crime and more recently right-wing extremism. <laughs> I'm Jackie Kirk. I am the Chair of Leadership and Educational Administration in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University. Michelle. Uh, thanks, Jackie. I'm Michelle Lamb. I'm the other co-host of the podcast and I'm the Director of the Center for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University. And I'm interested in this topic because my dissertation is a case study of newcomer integration in Brandon. Mm. And uh, there is a thread of racism and racist experiences running through the whole dissertation. And mm. so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I'm sure I'll learn a lot from all of you. Did you see the Moonshot Report? They had uh, recorded searches, online searches for, uh, you know, right-wing extremist sites and terms and all of that and found mm -hmm. like 300% increase in some kinds, some different mm -hmm. kinds of searches. And yeah. So and they looked at location for those searches? Or yeah. Oh yeah. It was, by, yeah. it was by city and they even uh, oh. sort of find, got it down to uh, area code where there was a lot of activity. Uh, so whether it was one person, you know, doing a lot or whether there's a little sort of network of some sort uh, in those areas. Yeah, really, really, it was quite scary because some of it was, you know, things like how to join the KKK, and that's that sort of thing, how to build a bomb. So yeah, the not nine searches, yeah, yeah. I'm always curious about the prairie provinces and whether they're different in some way. Yeah, pretty quiet. Saskatchewan and Manitoba have been really quiet. Yeah, especially yeah. relative to, to Alberta, uh, you oh, know, yeah. which is just, oof, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, it, you probably know Saskatchewan was really sort of the, the um, homeland of the KKK for the longest time. And, you know, we do see some glimmerings of a modern KKK movement out there, but not not a whole lot. So well, exactly. and things like Colton Bushy and like those kind of incidents. Yeah. Those yeah. are rural places, yeah. rural incidents, right? So I'm always... Yeah. In the rural areas, it's, you know, and I used to say this about down east, but down east has really changed in the last few years that, you know, they didn't sort of, didn't really need a movement, a far right movement. Because oh, I see. Was, no one needs to know how to Google. Well, it, it was so, you know, sort of the racism was so endemic in, in those, uh, in those communities that, uh, you know, it was, it, that was sort of normative. Or in the case of where I grew up, there wasn't any racial diversity, diversity like yeah. none. Well, that, but um, that's, that's the irony, right? You don't need diversity for people to be hateful. But on the other hand, I think I grew up without seeing any of that hate too. Mm, yeah. You know, because it wasn't in my school. And so, you know, I knew exactly where there was a family, a First Nations family that lived, but they were like 110 miles away. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so... Yeah. We'd see them playing outside when we went to the city and my parents would say, you know, that's the house. But then when I, 
like they didn't sort of give us any perspective of how we should think about that. Yeah. And they always had dogs and they always had bikes and the kids were always outside and it looked like a lot of fun to me. <laughs> you know, yeah. I didn't have a picture of that was, or that they lived in poverty or I didn't have any of those pictures because I had no reference point. Yeah. Well, the difference um, now is that everybody does get those pictures, right? Yeah. Just right here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and then the other yeah. thing was that if there were other non-white families in my community, they were usually the doctor's kids and they had status. Yeah. And yeah. so then right we there. all wanted to play with them and yeah. we all wanted to be friends with them. Like, I always feel like um, I don't have the background, so it's hard for me to know the issue. Like, I, I, I feel more and more I get to have had more experience, but for a long time, I felt like I really needed to step aside because I wasn't a person who had any implicit understanding or experience or, and I always sort of wished and feared for getting a job in a community where there would be a high indigenous population wished because I knew that that was a marketable skill and feared because I had no idea. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't um, have the tools to, uh, yeah. Okay, so I just want to start by saying, you know, I didn't, when I did my introduction, I didn't talk to you about my connections to the topic, but I talked a little bit when we were talking before about being from a small town in rural Saskatchewan where there really wasn't any racial diversity. And I feel like since then, I've been trying to catch up to the rest of the world in understanding who we are as Canadians and who we should be as Canadians. And I am forever searching through this topic and trying to talk to people who can teach me and trying to listen and trying to be open and always shocked and appalled at the things that I don't know and the things that I make assumptions about. And so I'm really excited about today's podcast because I think I am the one that will do the learning again, and I'm the one that needs to do the learning again. And so welcome everyone. I guess along that same line, we keep hearing that Canada is so much better than the US and so like less racist. And I know that that's an assumption. I would go one step further and say that I also make the assumption that the East in Canada has more racism, especially black racism, than the West. And so I think assumptions are where we get in trouble and where we need to start holding the mirror up for each other. So welcome everyone. Talk to me about those um, regional assumptions that we make about each other and that as Canadians we have made about the United States and how much validity is there? What can we learn from talking about it? Yeah, uh, several pieces in there that could, could be unpacked, I think. Um, I, and I did, you know, I was in the States for 12 years. Um, so, you know, I've sort of got that, that point of comparison. My husband's American as well. So, and there, there is a difference between the, the way that racism manifests. I mean, both countries are rife with systemic racism. 
which you know is is not what people think of when they when they think about racism they think about individuals right they don't really think about those structural forms uh, and I think that that's you know one of the, one of the first steps and certainly what we're hearing a lot about uh, in in the context of uh, the, the protests we're seeing across the world right now is to pay attention to uh, to that but I think that it also is the case that Canadian racism is a little more subtle. There are people who say, I prefer American style racism because it's in your face and you know where it is. Uh, whereas here, it's, a, it's sort of polite and coded uh, sort of, of racism that, that people often experience. Again, that's systemic. We're very careful, you know, we're polite anyway. Right now, that that is a, an assumption we all make, a stereotype we all have of, of Canadians. But there's some legitimacy uh, to that, I think, some credibility that we're fearful of giving offense uh, in in many respects. So I think we're you know a little quieter in our racism. We reserve it for behind closed doors and uh, aren't nearly as public with it. I, I think. Um, and in terms of regional differences, mm, that's a that's a that's a really tough one. What we often see if we look at public opinion polls, for example, is uh, Quebec uh, rising to the top in terms of you know sort of the proportions that have negative sentiments towards uh, you know a whole array of communities, as well as Alberta. Those are the two provinces that tend to really uh, to rank high, do we call it high, uh, you know, that are problematic in terms of those, uh, those polling results. And I could add to that to say, I do understand that. And I often hear that too, that assumption that, you know, Canada is much better in terms of racism. But I believe that our focus should shift from the assumption to the fact that it is happening within both countries and once it's happening it's not okay it's not okay and i do not we i do not believe that we should quantify it to say okay it might be more there or less here the fact is that people are being marginalized and oppressed mm -hmm. because of colonialism that has allowed to continue in contemporary society. I believe that we need to bring back the focus to the issue and not necessarily the assumption because while we are acting on those assumptions, we are ignoring the issue that we currently face as countries. I just wanted to add that both of those things that you raised, the sort of, well, we're not as bad as mm -hmm. another region or another country, or that idea of, well, look how far we've come, right? Mm -hmm. Both of those serve as kind of detours around the topic, right? And I'm curious about what those do to the conversation, that if you're heading down this path of recognizing the issue, and then suddenly you take a detour and say, well, it's not as bad as, or well, it's, it used to be worse than it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it allows, and this is, you know, it allows us to go one step further and say it's not a problem anymore. And I think that that's, you know, we, we are so complacent as Canadians that we think that, uh, you know, because we have a multiculturalism policy and because we have, you know, all kinds of, of programs around that, that somehow we are post-racial, uh, that we have overcome all of those problems, or at least, you know, we're trying really hard. Uh, it lets us off the hook. It, it absolutely does, uh, right? It means that we don't have to do the hard labor anymore or the the local version is but look we have a multicultural festival mm -hmm. yeah. that's wonderful but that's not a substitution for racial equity 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, okay, you have a festival, but uh, you know, what, how are your, how's your law enforcement uh, treating <laughs> people of, you know, different racial, uh, racial heritages? Uh, you know, how are your schools teaching uh, about race? How are they teaching about colonialism, uh, about the indigenous experience, all of those sorts of things? So yeah, those are, those are the questions you need to sort of come back, uh, come back to them with. What is shaping the current climate in which hate flourishes? So what are the factors that are affecting this whole discussion? Well, you, you know, I really don't know, but apparently we, as a society, allowed our history to pretty much define our present context, which is pretty much unfortunate. Like I often think about that question too, to say, you know, why are people in 2020, you know, treating fellow human beings the way they are doing. Like, I cannot find an answer to that. So then we think about the primary institutions of socialization. Are these institutions failing us as a society? Because I believe this is behavior that is learned over time. And it goes back to the home, the school, the church, all those social institutions that are supposed to help us in terms of preparing us for adulthood and for the future. So I believe that we need to revisit those institutions that transit certain norms and values into children who in turn, you know, go on into adulthood with these I guess, misconceptions about people in the sense that, you know, you have a race that is inferior and a race that is superior because it, it is a message that has been transmitted over time. I'm sort of interested in that perspective, Natasha Lee. As an educator, I understand that education is often used as a tool by the society to promote the political perspectives of the society at the time. And as we look back, we can see so many mistakes that we've made and so much harm that we've done as educators. I worry and wonder what is it that I'm being asked to promote now that um, we're gonna look back on in 50 years and go, oh, that was horrible. I'm really like, I can't quite get over that. I keep thinking about residential schools and the fact that my profession really caused so much harm when most teachers really are in it to do good, are in it to build people up. And we really, it was a destructive force in our society and we're still feeling the, the effects of it. And I think, I mean, we're seeing it now, sort of the continuation of that in the, the silence uh, in, uh, you know, across curricula across the country that, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't spend a lot of time talking about our colonial history, don't spend a lot of time talking about the residential schools, uh, all those sorts of pieces. Uh, you know, we're, obviously we're trying to indigenize uh, the curriculum now. Uh, but, uh, you know, that also implies that we have, uh, you know, that, that teachers have the capacity to have those conversations with their kids. Uh, and, I, you know, whether we're talking about that or uh, whether we're talking about, you know, oppression of, of immigrants, um, those, are, those are difficult conversations for which not everyone is necessarily equipped. So um, we, a good example, uh, we had a few years back, I had students uh, in 
one of their capstone courses developing uh, interventions against sort of to inoculate against a right-wing extremism in, uh, amongst youth. So they developed workshops for grade 11, you know, grade 10, 11, 12 uh, students and delivered them in half a dozen schools in our region. And uh, it was, you know, it was really interesting when they came back and said, you know, well, the kids said, oh, I had no idea. I didn't know, I, you know, I didn't know if these things existed. Um, but what was of more concern were the teachers saying the same thing. So in the midst of the rise in the right, the teachers aren't equipped to have those conversations. And so if the teachers, you know, don't have that awareness, that understanding, um, how are we going to, you know, sort of inoculate our kids against it? Yeah. Ashley, have you had those conversations with your kids? I have had them with mine. My kids are biracial and we've had the conversation about, you know, they're young. So we phrase it in ways that they can understand, but some people might treat you differently. Some people might not like you and it's not your fault. Um, but I'm curious if you've also been having those conversations in your house. Yes, definitely. Because um, so my older boy, unfortunately, he had experienced um, racism at school, which is very unfortunate. And so it took a point in terms of supporting emotionally to say just for him to pull on that inner strength because that's important and i guess that's how we persevere given all that is happening around us so it's to say okay i am special you know i have a purpose so it's just like those affirmations to say you know i am worthwhile i can do this i am resilient you know despite all the odds you know that is happening so it's just that to pull on that inner strength. So each time, you know, this is happening and it's very difficult, but then you can say, okay, this does not make me less than a human being because this is happening. You know, I am here for a reason. I am purpose. I am going to do well at school and move on and try to move on. But it's hard because they're kids and they don't really know to navigate that. You can imagine you're trying to play and another kid is going to say, I'm not going to play with you because you're too brown, you know? So those things are heartbreaking, but it happens. And, and that is where the support is needed to kind of get him to move forward, you know? But it's, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. And when your heart is just tied up in that with all those emotions, it makes it even, you know, more heartbreaking. But as educators, it is important in terms of what we're teaching and the type and the history as it relates to our teaching. Because sometimes, for example, I am from Jamaica and European history tells a different story as opposed to Caribbean history and how we choose to impart that information. You know, it's critical to how our students, because their mind, they're, you know, they're small and we are molding, we're shaping them. So whatever they take in is pretty much what they're going to let out. So that is why these social institutions are very, very important. Yeah, I see a big, like um, what Barb was saying earlier about how teachers don't necessarily feel equipped to be able to have those conversations or to be able to teach that knowledge. If those conversations are happening in homes, then that really shows the need to be able to draw on parents parents mm -hmm. of color, immigrant parents, indigenous parents, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. as a source of strength and a source of knowledge for the whole classroom and to be able to strengthen those connections, particularly when we have a teaching profession that's largely white, right? Definitely. And that circles us right back to the systemic pieces, right? Yes. But I think I took us off track. I actually, I really wanted to hear Bob Barb's answer too. Sorry, Jackie. I wanted to hear about what shapes the climate in which hate flourishes from your perspective, Barb. Sure. Well, yeah, as Natasha Lee put it so so eloquently, um, it, it is it is in our history, right? I mean, we are founded in uh, you know that notion of of white supremacy and uh, you know the subjugation of uh, the indigenous population, and then after that, uh, you know, the black population in terms of of slavery. So we carry all of that with us. Um, but in the more immediate context, it's sort of been a perfect storm over the past uh, five or six years. Uh, you know, we like to lay the blame squarely at Trump's feet uh, in terms of normalizing the kind of hatred that we're seeing now, the rise of the right, all of that. Uh, and he is certainly through his explicit discourse, uh, you know, sort of continued to vilify Muslims and immigrants and uh, Latinos and black people and, uh, you know, anyone who does not look like him. Um, but we, yeah, we've, we've had our own, uh, talking about key institutions, right, political leaders and, uh, and administrations that have played the same kinds of games, especially around immigration, especially around um, Muslims. Um, so, you know, we have, we have that emboldening uh, the far right. And then, you know, to, to bring it to sort of even more immediate than that, on top of all of that, we layer on COVID now uh, and uh, how that has been exploited by, uh, by the far right to, again, place the blame on Jews, you know, it's a Jewish conspiracy, place the blame on the Chinese, That's a, you know, it's a Chinese conspiracy, it's a bioweapon. Uh, all of those pieces are also feeding into uh, sort of this wave of, of xenophobia and hatred directed towards a, a whole array of communities. Um, and now, you know, after the, not just one murder, but several murders of Black and Indigenous people in the past uh, couple of weeks, Uh, at the hands of law enforcement and the protests. The protests are also being exploited uh, by the far right uh, to say, you know, look, there they go again, uh, sort of thing. Um, But also uh, they are acting as uh, provocateurs at some of the, uh, the protests, as we've seen, you know, it's, it, they've been provoking violence and engaging in violence themselves in order to discredit uh, the movement as well. So uh, there are all of these processes coming together. And I think then, you know, let's look at another layer in there. And I think this is especially the case uh, in the West where there's so much anxiety in the past, uh, well, there always is, but in particular the past couple of years, three or four years around the risk to the energy sector and especially the oil industry um, and the sort of economic anxiety that that's causing. So again, looking for scapegoats there. Uh, to close the borders so that we, you know, we don't have uh, the, the sort of competition. And again, COVID has added another layer to that in terms of lost jobs, lost businesses. Um, so there are multiple, multiple uh, and overlapping um, processes, I think, at work here. So that's leading to lots of individuals and organizations who are standing up and making a commitment to publicly to equity, to diversity, to anti-racism. Is that 
going to make a difference? Are we going to see change evolve out of this um, perfect storm, as you call it? Well, is there, ahead, anything new? is there anything new in those promises that we haven't heard before? Uh, you know, that whether it's businesses saying they're going to enhance their diversity hiring or they're going to look more closely at their, uh, you know, policies and, and measure them for uh, systemic uh, discrimination. Um, you know, we've certainly heard from provincial and federal leaders before. Uh, Ontario is a, a good example of uh, how the, uh, the whim of a government can shape uh, the direction that we take in that area. Uh, you know, under the last administration, there was a um, strategic plan on racism and, and uh, anti-Black racism, especially. And it was sort of, and there, there was a race anti-racism directorate uh, established, and all of that has been pretty much um, laid to rest under the current administration. Uh, and even now, you know, there are calls to resuscitate that uh, in light of the, uh, the protests and the demands for equity. And there's, I mean, there aren't even promises being made uh, that uh, there, there are plans afoot to, um, you know, sort of bring it back to life. Uh, we have a federal, now we have a federal. Uh, when was that introduced? Uh, six, eight months ago, a federal um, action plan on racism and you know it's it's a nice piece of paper but where are, where's the funding where are the programs where are the, the real initiatives on the ground um, that are have the capacity to even touch you know whether it's anti-indigenous or anti-black or anti-asian whatever the case may be um, so I think there's you know there continues to be a lot of, of, of empty rhetoric Perfectly put, Barb, because if, if we have all these on paper, they become empty gestures without the action to support, to support these initiatives. So if it is that these systems that are on paper are not being supported, then it means we're back, basically back to where we have started years ago. Because if you look at it now, we do not have a set of laws for black people and a set of laws for white people. We have laws on paper that should ensure, you know, equity. But then persons who are supposed to ensure that equity and justice are not necessarily doing that. Because if you look at law enforcement, who are supposed to ensure that, you know, these fairness is, is consistent for everyone. It is not being done. So not until we change the systems that are in place that are oppressing persons and marginalizing people based on race, then we won't see a change. I think we have to start small. So as individuals, we need to confront our own biases because at the end of the day, it's people like us who are in these positions of power and who should ensure that persons really get the justice that they should and based on what is written in terms of laws and policies. So we have to start small, confronting our own biases, looking in our workplace, looking at our homes, see what we can do. And, you know, and I think it will just build up in terms of a ripple effect, just, you know, reflecting and just going forward. So we have to start small, and get bigger. Because I think we have, as you clearly outlined, we have those policies in place, which is big, 
in terms of political, it's at that level. But then the other actions that are needed to support these policies are not in place. It's in the schools, it's in the health institutions, social services institutions. So not until we try to eliminate those before we can really move forward to say that this is a change that we are going to support and we're going to do everything that we can to support this change. We are all one and I believe that's a good way in terms of moving forward. Yeah, Natasha, you also acknowledge that, uh, you know, change has to happen at a number of levels. I mean, the individual, the organizational, and, and the structural as well. And they build on uh, one another. I mean, sometimes we do need policy change and legislation to change behavior. It might not change attitudes right away, but it will change our, our behavior. Um, so, you know, it does need to, to occur there. Um, when I did a lot of work with uh, PFLAG, do you know PFLAG, Parents and Friends uh, of Lesbians and Gays, uh, and did a lot of education for them. And um, one, of the, one of the things that I would share, especially with workplaces, were um, some assessment forms. So there was an individual assessment to uh, assess your own biases, as you were referring to, uh, and, uh, you know, where, where you held some stereotypes, where you held biases, all that sort of thing. But I also provided them with um, uh, sort of um, organizational assessments uh, as well, uh, you know, sort of checklists, if you will, to as a means of, you know, sort of assessing their, uh, their policy base, whether it was around hiring and promotion or pay or training or whatever the, the case may be. And, and organizations found that really helpful. So there, you know, you're, you're working at the individual level, but also uh, at that organizational level. Um, and, and that can filter in, you know, depending on the workplace, right? It can filter up uh, to the next level. So it's, you know, it's sort of both directions, right? From the bottom up and from the top down. Uh, and we need to be coming at it from mm -hmm. all of those directions. Okay, so Barb, I'm gonna keep you talking. You are working on these hard issues in a number of different capacities, like with a number of different issues. How do you care for yourself in all of that? I'm supposed to do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, not, I think not very well. I, you know, I think one of the things that sort of is a buffer for me is that I'm, in spite of all this, the work that I do, I'm a very positive person. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very upbeat person. I'm always, you know, I'm always smiling. Um, and I think that just that part of my nature helps me, helps me through. Um, and, and I'm much better, uh, as all of us are, I think, in the summer, in the winter. I'm a gardener, so, you know, I, I live for the summer when I can be outside, and that's really my therapy is to, uh, you know, I was raised on a farm. You could hear my brother's tractor in the background. He picks today to start bailing the, or, or cutting the hay outside the cottage. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I was raised on a farm, so it's in my, uh, it's in my genes, and uh, it really is therapeutic for me to, you know, to, to grow something. So even in the winter, uh, you know, I start my seeds uh, early, and that, you know, that is, that's a distraction for me, and that's, uh, you know, the way that I, um, I, I self-medicate, uh, if you will, with earth. Uh, and, uh, and, and that really, I think, you know, that sort of inner joyfulness that I have by nature uh, and uh, you know that kind of, of mindless release uh, almost uh, of gardening is um, that's that's that does it for me um, you know I, I don't have I don't have kids um, to sort of uh, pour my energy into and uh, you know find um, 
find joy in. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I do get some of that from my family. So, I, and I'm sure all of you are finding what a challenge it is, um, you know, in, in lockdown, um, you know, maybe too much family. Uh, in my case, it's not enough family because, you know, I can't see my brother and my sister and my nieces. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's been a bit of a challenge, but aren't we lucky to at least be locked down in an era of Zoom and Skype and all of these other, uh, yes. other pieces that keep us connected? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So relationships are also, I think, very important to, to mm -hmm. keeping me grounded and keeping me, um, keeping me sane. Yeah. Thank you. That's good. Natasha Lee, would you like to add anything to that question? Um, for me, it's, it's a lot of inner strength. Um, and just telling myself that I am going to do it. Um, for me, life has never been easy. So I've always been breaking down barriers, you know. So it kind of become a part of me to say that if I need to get something done, like I am going to do it. It's just trying to hold on to the values that you have. In terms of self-care, my children, they are very therapeutic. And just knowing that you are trying to provide a better life for them or, you know, it's, it helps you, it keeps you going despite all the negative happenings and remaining positive is important because if every day you wake up saying something bad is going to happen, then more than like, that's where your mindset is. So mm -hmm. mindset is important. So you have to wake up um, being positive saying okay this is happening but a change is going to come you know or look at the positive look at the um the peaceful protest look at other people standing with us you know fighting for this cause too because they realize that you know we have been marginalized and we have been negatively affected over the years so in despite the negative happening like i just tried to find at least one positive out of it to say, okay, this is what I'm going to hold on to and help this to push me forward. So, and again, it's challenging. And I do have my, some people believe I'm really strong, but I do have my points, my low points. But, you know, when, you, when I think about like the positive, like it, it just drives me. And for me, a lot of my processing takes place in my head um, because I'm always busy. So, so I, I kind of give myself that self-talk, you know, in my head, in my thoughts to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to hold on to. Um, this is what I'm going to allow to shape me, you know, to shape my day and just try and move forward. And just hopefully if something unexpectedly happens, then you, you try to deal with it as it comes and just try to see the positive out of it. Michelle? For me, I feel like, I struggle in this area. I'm more sensitive than I need to be sometimes. And so if I'm doing some work and someone doesn't like it, or I hear something negative in response to something I've done, I take it personally and it takes me a long time to be okay again. And um, I, I, it's something I'm working on. I feel like my family helps, my community helps, but I, I have to, it takes a few days for me to kind of come back to okay, this is what I'm doing. This is why. And I also realize there's immense privilege in that, that I can, I can shut my laptop and it all goes away. Right. I don't, I don't go outside on the street and encounter the same levels of racism that indigenous or people of color would encounter just in everyday life. And so I feel like 
that that's a point of privilege too, that I can, I can shut it down and take a few days if I need to kind of recover from some hurtful comments or something like that. Um, and not everyone can, can do that. And so I recognize that that's privilege, but I also feel like it's a really an area that I want to work on. Yeah, but it, it would, it will hurt because, you know, it's hard because we have emotions and, and that's a part of dealing with it too. It's not like it affects us, like it affects me, but it's just, and, and like, I cannot ignore that, but it's just the way to not allow it to consume you totally where mm-hmm. it becomes so detrimental to your health and well-being you know mm-hmm. and, and and that's where as a as people of color we we need to pull on that inner strength to be resilient because when we allow other people to see us as in being weak like i guess that's what the oppressor wants us to be weak mm-hmm. but you have to kind of push back and say no i'm going to stand i am going to fight i am going to be strong and yes we are hurting but it's just trying to you know put up that resistance to say i am not going to fall and die i'm mm-hmm. going to stand and say no this is not right you should not be doing this to us and there's a better way you know, treating us with respect and dignity does not mean that you're not going to be treated with respect and dignity. The issues do get me down and I get really down on myself about the assumptions. Like when I talked at the beginning about the assumptions, you know, with the George Floyd case specifically, I'm passed it by without paying attention to what the news story was about because it was US news. And I get really depressed about the U.S. news because I see so many people being hurt. And so I had passed it by, but one of my best friends is black. And he phoned and said, did you see that story? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm not paying attention to what happens in the States. And then I had to live with the fact that it had really hurt him and I hadn't paid attention. And that was like when Michelle talked about closing her laptop and having it gone, um, then I recognize, oh, that's all about my privilege. And I have the privilege of saying, no, that's just another US story. And yeah, it does take, like it does take self care because I, despite the fact that I make assumptions, I'm a person who cares deeply about the people around me. And I take it pretty hard that I, have when I recognize those pieces though that hurts that I wasn't that good but it's also a good mirror because then I can grow from that but yeah then I go back to my being outside being with my dogs being in my garden those are the places that I sort of get to grow again come back so thank you very much for being with us And I really appreciate that both of you took the time to spend with us this afternoon. So thanks a lot. Yeah, well, thanks thanks for facilitating the conversation. It's an important one to have right now. Thank you for listening to the Research Connection podcast. You can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode. And for more Research Connection content at www.brandonu.ca slash bu-cares. Be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community. Thank you.